So this is Mark Gottfried. I've um, began a new podcast called The Front Row. Uh, we're filming this in Newport Beach, California, and uh, just going to have a lot of fun talking about a lot of different topics. And, uh, you know, one of the things I get asked the most uh, about is while I was at UCLA as an assistant coach for seven years, I got asked a lot of questions about what was it like to be around John Wooden. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, I've been around some amazing people, amazing coaches, very wise people, but I'm not sure I've ever been in the presence of somebody that I felt was as wise as John Wood. You know, he won uh, 10 national championships over a 12-year period at UCLA in basketball. Obviously, guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton. And, you know, the list just goes on and on and on of the great, great players that he had uh, that he coached. But, you know, one thing that always stood out to me probably more than anything uh, were the way he could um, deliver a thought. And it was a it was a kind of a penetrating way where it made you really stop and think about it. And, you know, I would go to his house many times after practice on my way home. Uh, I lived in Calabasas and I had to drive, you know, on the 101 and go past Encino where Coach Wooden lived. And uh, every time I went to his house, you know, I wish I had a catcher's mitt and I would just try to catch all these, you know, amazing pearls of wisdom that uh, Coach Wooden had. And, you know, I remember asking him one time, uh, you know, you see coaches nowadays, and I was one of them for 35 years, where you're, you know, you're kind of up and down uh, the sidelines and, uh, you know, very active and animated. And, you know, I said, Coach, were you ever that way? Did you, did you uh, yell and scream, um, you know, at your players, at the officials, and, and tell me kind of your style? And he always had great answers. And, and the way he answered me that day was he said, Mark, you know, when I was a young coach, I did scream. I did yell. I was very animated. He said, but as I've gotten older in life, I realized that I would much rather soften my voice and have my players strain to listen than constantly raise my voice and have them cover their ears. And that's an example of, uh, you know, how Coach Wooden, if you, if you asked him a question, it was amazing how he would find ways to answer. And, you know, he told me one time, uh, you know, coaching is a lot like parenting. And he said to me, uh, you know, Mark, it's amazing how a young person's hearing improves when they hear praise. He said, reprimand them, yes, followed by praise. And it's so true for all of us uh, how a young person's hearing improves when they actually hear praise instead of constant criticism. And, and so there were so many times with Coach Wooden, we'd sit and talk about leadership. We'd talk about um, you know, coaching styles, and and some of it was X's and O's, and we talk about how he how he would uh, you know teach his two two one press and uh, different things with the the high post offense. But the majority of time uh, with Coach Wooden, it was uh, life lessons. And you know, my first year at UCLA, we had a player who was really talented. He was a good player, and. He ended up being a really good player for our first two years when I coached there from 19. I was there from 88 to 95, but from 88 to 90, you know, we had a young guy named Trevor Wilson. And Trevor uh, was a guy that was was uh, kind of tough. He was stubborn. Uh, he was kind of set in his ways. He wanted to do things his way. His way. And uh, we came in as a new staff. I was a graduate assistant coach my first year. And, uh, you know, I was very young. And I wasn't a whole lot older than some of the players, but – you know, we were really having a difficult time because it was somewhat of a power struggle between the new staff and uh, a player that uh, was extremely talented and could really help us win. 
And I remember one morning we went to, to breakfast with Coach Wooden, and uh, we're sitting around eating breakfast, and it's uh, October, maybe late October of 1988. It's my first year at UCLA. I'm sitting across John Wooden. He's got syrup coming off his chin, eating his pancakes, and I'm thinking, God, that's John Wooden over there. He's got syrup on his chin. And, and, uh, but it was an amazing morning. But I remember we started telling him, you know, and talking to him about, you know, what was going on in practice every day. If, if we told Trevor to run to this end, he would go to that end. If we said to tuck your shirt in, he'd take his shirt out. And so, you know, it's one of those where coaches, uh, you know, we encounter that a lot sometimes where it's almost a, a matter of who has the strongest will. And, and I remember Coach Wooden saying to us that morning, uh, would you rather have him or would you rather not have him? And obviously, we would want to have him. You know, he was a talented player. And I remember Coach Wooden looking uh, at all of us, and I was very young at the time. And, you know, he looked right at me and he said, It's your job to coach him. That's your job. The easiest thing you can do is get rid of him, to kick him off the team. And, you know, I think great coaches find a way to connect and coach great players. One of the reasons that makes players so great at times is because they are strong willed. Uh, they, they do dig in when, when they feel uh, strongly or they feel they're right about situations. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. But I think with Coach Wooden, it was a great lesson for me as a young coach. And I coached 35 years, college basketball. And, you know, I coached some guys that were easy to coach. I coached guys that were hard to coach. But I always go back to remember what uh, John Wooden said. And he said, would you rather have him or not have him? And if you'd rather have him, then it's your job to coach him. And coaching him at that time meant, you know, kind of meeting him at a place where you really understood what was going on with Trevor. And then, you know, those lessons uh, stayed with me all throughout my, my coaching career. So I learned a great deal from John Wooden, probably the wisest, um, you know, person that I've ever been around. And uh, I learned a great deal, uh, you know, about coach. And, uh, you know, he was always generous with his time. And everybody that came in contact with John Wooden, probably would say the same thing. He made you feel like you were the most important person on the planet, and he made time, and he was never in a hurry. And if a half hour turned into an hour, an hour turned into an hour and a half, rarely, um, you know, did Coach Wooden say, I have to go, and uh, your time is up. And, you know, there would be nights I would leave UCLA's uh, practice, um, you know, in Westwood there right off the 405 in uh, the west side of L.A., and I had to drive to Calabasas. And I would go by Coach's house. I'd stop in, and we'd sit down, and we'd actually watch the Bob Newhart show together a little bit. And even in those moments, he would find ways to share uh, some uh, pearl of wisdom. So incredibly thankful for the time I had with uh, John Wooden and uh, wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And when we have these discussions about who was the best coach of all time, and there's been some great ones, great coaches in every sport, you know, obviously, I'm a product of the University of Alabama where Bear Bryant was so amazing in football, and Nick Saban has taken that thing to a whole nother level and will go down arguably as if not the greatest or one of the greatest uh, coaches in college football history. You look in the NBA at a guy like Phil Jackson and Red Auerbach, and then in baseball, you can go on and on in every sport. But I would argue with anybody that if there's a Mount Everest of coaching, uh, John Wooden is definitely on the mountain. You, you can't, in my view, argue that. And uh, great players, but uh, the run of having 10 national champs over a 12-year period of college basketball, it'll never be repeated again for a lot of different reasons. But 
what an era and uh, what a phenomenal coach that he was, but also a great, great person. So um, I had some remarkable moments uh, with John Wooden. I get asked a lot now about uh, in college athletics, even though I'm not coaching now, I coached for 35 years, but I get asked a lot about the NIL and the transfer portal, and uh, I have strong feelings about it. Um, I think it's really damaged college athletics. On one hand, I'm very happy for the players. If you think about the genesis of the NIL, uh, name, image, and likeness, and players having the opportunity to, to, uh, to cash in on their name, their likeness, their image while they're a college athlete, I get it, and I'm happy for them. You know, I've played golf a number of times here in uh, Southern California with Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel was known as Mr. Football at Texas A&M. He was a quarterback, um, first-round draft pick in the NFL. And, and probably Johnny's uh, most marketable time period would have been that time period while he was playing college football. Yet at that time, it was against the NCAA rules to, to uh, get any kind of money, any kind of compensation for your name, image, or likeness. In other words, selling a jersey, signing autographs, um, anything like that, doing a commercial, um, putting, your, putting your picture on a billboard and getting paid for it by a company. Those, those were all uh, not allowed by the NCAA, and now those rules have changed. The unintended consequences of uh, the NIL becoming uh, okay for every student athlete, regardless of sport, uh, is that now every student athlete expects uh, that they can receive some money through the NIL. And every player uh, is looking somewhat to the coaching staff who recruited them to that school to help organize and uh, to maybe garner some opportunities for them. Um, even though coaches aren't supposed to be involved, it's nearly impossible for a coach not to be involved. And uh, through the recruiting process and while the player's on your campus, uh, but the unintended consequence right now is that you have – um, just about every player in, in the highest level of basketball and football that would expect at some point uh, to get paid something from somebody through a legal avenue. And it's really not the way uh, the rule was ever intended to be. It's really not what college athletics are all about. And so even though I, I like the fact that student athletes can now be compensated in one way or another for their name, their image, or their likeness, I think the unintended consequences have created an absolute mess. Uh, professional sports, for an example, uh, there are uh, salary caps for the NBA, for Major League Baseball, for NFL, uh, teams that are in big markets with big television contracts like the Dodgers or the Lakers are much different than uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Cleveland Indians. It's a different market, and there's opportunities and more opportunities for those franchises to uh, you know to get to get more revenue um, college athletics is not built in a way to where they can sustain and there's no salary cap for each school right now and the other thing that I think that's interesting right now is there's not a lot of transparency as far as what is actually happening you know for example take if you're a, a college freshman and you're playing football at Ohio State or Alabama or Notre Dame or USC or wherever and and you're hearing that the guy that's three lockers over just got an NIL deal for $200,000 to sign autographs on a Saturday afternoon, which is legal, I guess, now with the NCAA. 
And, and, but you don't know if it's actually 200. It might be 200 bucks. And he might just be saying it's 200,000. So there's so many parts of the NIL right now that I, I think eventually need to get ironed out. I think that uh, universities will eventually, not yet, but eventually begin to pay athletes. I think in the state of California, that legislation was just passed. So anyway, I, I just think it's a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a model that's really difficult right now for college sports. It's putting a lot of pressure on donors that already buy season tickets, already buy uh, seat licensing for their tickets, already donate to any fundraising campaigns. Maybe it's to improve facilities or whatever it may be on those individual campuses. And now the pressure all falls back on the donor to help raise money one way or another for that football or basketball or baseball team, whatever it may be, to be competitive because you have to understand if somebody else at the top of the food chain is able to uh, you know, offer a player or somebody in that community can offer a, a recruit a, or a player X amount of money. You've got to be able to match it. You've got no chance to be competitive if you can't. So anyway, I think the model is one that's got to be tweaked. I'm not sure that it's uh, the current model is uh, what college athletics is all about. I think I've uh, talked to a number of coaches who are my friends who are saying that sometimes in the sport of basketball and football, you know, players literally – or having somebody communicate to the coaching staff or whomever at that university that if I don't get $100,000 or if I don't have X amount of money by this time period and I'm going into the portal and they can go into a transfer portal and transfer immediately without having to sit out a year, which in basketball and football for the history of time, kids have had to sit out. So on one hand, it's a, it's a great problem and that players and student athletes are able to receive that compensation. I think for, for the NCAA, the next steps now are to iron out and figure out how to manage it, how to police it, how to uh, make sure that uh, everything is the way it's supposed to be. And I mentioned before, just like in pro sports, there is a salary cap for each school. There is an amount of money that you can't go over. And if you do, there's a there's a luxury tax for te teams. So I just think there has to be a lot that's going to get worked out, hopefully in the near future. But I think right now, currently, we're kind of in the infant stages in the first couple, two or three years of the NIL and the uh, transfer portal being instituted at the same time. I think it's causing a lot of havoc. I think it's causing a lot of chaos. And uh, I'm just not sure that's what college athletics is all about. I think it's great, but I think we do have to figure out the powers that be have to figure out how to manage it in a way to where student athletes can still get some compensation, but on the same time, uh, there's a uh, you know an equitable balance when you look from team to team around the country. Because right now, you know the rich are going to get richer, and um, you know some of the schools that don't have those kind of resources, don't have that kind of a donor base um, in the recruiting game, they're going to fall behind. And so I think right now that's probably more than anything the way I look at the whole NIL and the and the transfer portal um, um, situation. I've got a lot of uh, ideas in regard to the NCAA. Uh, I'm not a fan at all. You know, years and years ago, the basketball coach at UNLV that was very famous, he was an excellent basketball coach, won a national championship at UNLV and coached great players and later sued the NCAA and, and won a uh, sizable uh, dispute with the NCAA. But Jerry Tarkanian made a quote years ago, and he said, you know, the NCAA will investigate Kentucky 
and then put Cleveland State on probation. And, you know, little did we know then how true it actually is. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, college athletics, uh, those that are at the top of the food chain that are your most notable high-profile schools, um, they have a lot more money that they can spend. And they can spend a lot more money in legal fees to fight any allegations that may be um, there against a coach or against a team within their, within their school. A lot of times the schools that are, are not at the top of the food chain, that don't have the revenue source that some of the major school ha- schools have, they don't have the money to fight the NCAA. They don't have the desire or the, or the will to do that. And so sometimes it's easy pickings. I've said many times uh, the NCAA at times can be like the schoolyard bully on an elementary school campus. You know, there's a kid walking around with, you know, glasses and he's got his, uh, all his pencils in his shirt and he's small and frail and they like to pick on that guy. But the big kid that's walking around that's a whole lot bigger and stronger than everybody else, they don't really pick on them as much. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Number one, I think from the NCAA standpoint, they know from a legal standpoint uh, that certain schools have the financial resources to fight the NCAA. And a lot of times it's very, very expensive uh, to do that. And, and also I think the NCAA, when selling um, the NCAA basketball tournament, for example, they're going to sell a three-week basketball tournament to CBS, Turner, Fox, ESPN, and, and, and create a, a, a television contract, which – I think our last contract in college basketball, I think, was over a billion dollars over a seven-year period. And when you're talking about uh, the NCAA selling their product, which is college basketball and the college basketball tournament to TNT, to CBS, uh, for a lot of money, obviously you don't want your marquee schools, the best schools, the brightest schools, to be absent from the tournament. And so I think over time what happens is is – um, the NCAA, uh, they understand that the best schools need to participate. And in college basketball, you're talking about Duke, Carolina, Indiana, Kentucky, UCLA, Kansas, Louisville. You know, the list goes on and on and on of some of the, the premier programs. And so it would hurt uh, college basketball and the NCAA in their ability to negotiate a, a contract if all those teams uh, weren't a part of the NCAA tournament. So There's a lot of uh, ways to look at it. I've been on every side of the equation. I've coached at smaller schools, which we call the mid-major schools. I've coached at the high-profile schools that are in the ACC and the SEC. I've been head coaches. I've been a head coach at schools in all of those. I was at UCLA uh, for seven years. I worked at ESPN for two years. And so I've seen um, college basketball from all different angles. And obviously, I have some pretty strong uh, feelings about it. Mark, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What characteristics did you want to instill into your players when you were coaching? You know, there's so many things when you're a coach and, and things that you want to instill into your players outside of, you know, the X's and O's of coaching the game. You know, if you're coaching football and, you know, you want guys to, to learn the fundamentals of the game, just like college basketball, that's what we do. But at the same time, I think coaches understand and, and realize that, um, what a tremendous opportunity that we have with young people to not only you know teach the game and teach fundamentals, but also teach amazing lessons about life. And 
you know, for me, I always had a saying when I was a head coach that you have to play through. And, and that's something I think our players would even say to me at times, even in timeouts, late game, two minutes to go in the game, tie game, you know, everything's on the line. And I could hear our players even say, and play through, you got to play through. And what I meant by that was you have to play through so many different things. You've got to play through uh, an official making bad calls. You've got to play through the coach yelling at you. You've got to play through the fact that, you know, you've missed five foul shots in a row. And you've, you've got to play through all the time. I think so many times there's a mental side of coaching where, you know, especially young people and even guys that play at the highest level in the NBA, you know, they, they get kind of tangled in their own web and they can't play through. They can't play through mistakes. You've got to play through the fact that your uh, flight uh, last night into the game was delayed three hours and we had to sit in the FBO waiting on our charter plane or the bus uh, broke down on the way to the game and you didn't get uh, as many hours of sleep as you would have liked to. You have to play through all those things. I used to tell players, you got to play through uh, your girlfriend breaking up with you. You got to play through the fact that your mom and dad think you ought to shoot the ball every single time you touch it. You got to play through the fact that um, you think the referee has it out for you and that he's just calling, you know, making calls uh, that are against you. You got to play through everything. And I think what happens with that is then you translate that to life. And we all have to do that. You got to play through things every day. You've got to play through unexpected expenses that come up that you had no idea. You got to play through the fact that your car broke down and you, you may have, not have enough money for new tires right now. There, there's so many things in life that I think you have to play through. And that was one of the things that I thought with our players all the time that I wanted them to learn. I think there's another thing that, you know, I always wanted our players to have a positive approach every day, to create enthusiasm, to be upbeat. So I had a thing with, with players throughout the years where if I, if I said, how are you doing? They had one of five answers. Good, great, terrific, fantastic, and sensational. So if I saw them on campus, if they were walking across campus and and I said, hey, Bob, how you doing today? I expected to hear, good coach, great coach, or coach, I'm sensational today. I'm fantastic today. And you'd be surprised at how many times just by expressing something in a positive way, it not only lifts your own spirit, it lifts the spirit of those people around you, as opposed to walking in practice, walking in the locker room, you know, before the game, how you doing today, Bob? Nah, not doing so good. And I would tell my players, my door is always open. We could always come talk about whatever issues you got going on. But at the same time, when I say, hey, how you doing today? Coach, I'm fantastic. And it just changes the game. It changes the room. It changes practice. It changes everything about what we're doing every day. So just the fact that you can be positive every day, I think, is uh, it's such, a, it's such an important thing. You know, another thing for me was time, understanding how to be on time. A lot of people don't realize in athletics, there's so many lessons to learn, but one of the lessons is that you, you have the ability to teach young people that time matters, being on time. It's not acceptable to be late. It won't be acceptable for you to be late to a meeting one day. It's not acceptable for you to be late to class. I used to tell guys all the time, if I'm a professor and I'm teaching class and I'm up and I've already started my lesson, I'm on the board, and here you come walking in 10 minutes late. First of all, it's an interruption. Second of all, what you're saying is that your time is more important than my time if I'm the professor. 
And your important, your time is not important, more important than my time. So I was raised in a way where time and being timely and being on time and being five minutes early or 10 minutes early, that's just standard. That's the way you should operate because it's somewhat rude for you to think people should always wait for you. They always have to wait for me. The bus will wait for me. No, the bus is not going to wait for you. When it's time to go, it's time to go. And you need to understand that. So for me, teaching guys about time, teaching guys how to play through, I think all those are so many, there's so many lessons, I think, in, in, in all the great coaches. If you, if you interview great coaches, players, those players who played for guys, they will be able to tell you those lessons and those things they were learning you know, from that coach all of the time uh, throughout their, their run with them. And, uh, you know, I just love guys that were positive every day, upbeat, positive, enthusiastic, energetic. And I just think you get a whole lot more done um, when those things are a part of it. All right, I got one more question. This is kind of a curveball. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but... Do you think the NCAA should give Reggie Bush back his Heisman Trophy? <laughs> I think it's a great question. Should Reggie Bush get his Heisman Trophy back? And I would say this answer unequivocally. I didn't say that word right. Unequivocally. Absolutely. Without question. Without doubt. Yes. I think it's probably one of the greatest uh, travesties in sports with Reggie Bush. And, you know, again, I, I look at the NCAA at times, and, and uh, I, on one hand, I understand they've got a difficult job. On the other, time, other hand, I think there are times when they just flex their muscles. And for me, as I watched from a distance, that was a period where I think they just flexed their muscles. They lost in a lawsuit. Uh, you've come to a place now where – NIL is a part of everything. Guys can, and girls and student athletes can get, you know, $100,000 for an hour worth of autographs if a collective or an NCAA or some entity chooses to. So I think with, uh, with the NCAA, they would never ask me my advice. I know that because uh, of my feelings to them. But if they ever did ask me my advice, I would say without a doubt he should have that trophy back. And and for him, you know, he's a great, great player who, on top of being a great player, he has shown to be a great ambassador for so many other things in life. And uh, so for me, without a doubt, I'd like to see Reggie Bush have his trophy back. 